So um, I'll just say that I am in upstate New York, Albany area. I'm a PharmD. I have a <coughs> clinical practice in the VA hospital. And <coughs> um, most of you probably know that, at least in the federal system, pharmacists are considered providers. They have prescribing privileges. And we actually, in our hospital, do a lot of, uh, of urine uh, drug screens. So uh, a lot. So. Um, I'd like to kind of get an idea, just because I, I, I would like to know what to cover and the specifics of what things. How many um, pharmacists do we have in the room? How many NPs? Wow. PAs? Medical doctors? Okay, I guess I should say DO, because that's not really an MD, right? So physicians. Any, any kind of physician. Okay. Um, and then uh, nurses? MSAs? Dentists? Physical therapists, we got physical therapists. Impressive. We have a physical therapist here to learn about urine screens. You get the gold star. Okay. Um, did I miss anybody? No. Any pharma police here? No. Okay. All right. So um, hopefully we'll have a, a good time this morning. Uh, this urine screen thing is kind of near and dear to my heart. I have some uh, disclosures. They're all listed there. Um, as I pointed out, I can't remember whether it was yesterday or the day before, uh, I want to call close attention uh, to remitigate uh, the, on the owner of that. And it's a um, kind of a small software company that I, I never thought I would ever be involved in a software company, but I started to, to develop software apps to help clinicians document different things. It started out. Um, it started out actually developing a urine screen application. So I bring that up because um, one of the applications I'm going to share with you later on in the slide set because I think, it, it, I, think I, I developed it to help clinicians. I'll talk a little bit about that later, but I want to make it crystal clear. I'm not here to sell anything. Um, I, I developed it to help people. So anyway, um, so the learning objectives for today Differentiate between in-office uh, uh, qualitative testing and quantitative testing. That's important. Explain how to interpret unexpected urine drug tests. Um, I think the new buzz, the new buzz uh, acronym is going to be UDM, urine drug monitoring. There will be new guidelines coming out probably um, by the latest December by the American Academy of Pain Medicine. There really are no, no specific uh, consensus guidelines at, that, at this time. I explain how to uh, incorporate these urine drug screens into ongoing clinical practice and um, maybe more importantly, decision-making. So one of the things that, that, well, there's a lot of things that aggravate me about the CDC guidelines. Um, one in particular is that they say, you know, they recommend that you should be doing urine drug monitoring. The recommendation should be that if you do urine drug monitoring, you damn well better know how to interpret it, right? Because there are a lot of patients... That it, it's interesting to me. I get emails from practitioners all the time and from patients. And some people uh, are doing urine drug screens, and if something comes back unexpected, they're like, oh, that's great. Now I can take the patient off of opioids. That's obviously not the, the, the correct response. All right? If there's an unexpected result, you need to do some, some more work. All right? And then to describe how to communicate with patients about unexpected results. So that's that's really very important. If, if something comes up, you need to figure out uh, why it came up. All right, so this slide uh, gives you a street value perspective. Now, 
Um, this is a street value perspective in Albany, New York. So it may be different in Vegas. I think drugs are a little cheaper here. I don't know. Um, but 120 Percocet, brand name, 5325 in Albany, is worth about $600. 120 Lortab, 10500, any brand, is worth $600. 60 Oxycontin, 80 milligrams, $1,500. Price actually went down since the formulation changed, even with inflation. 120 Actique Lollipops, 200 micrograms, $3,240. And knowing when your patient's diverting drug, priceless. Okay, so, so that's, that's how we're going to proceed this morning. All right, so this is an interesting thing called the Wizenator kit. Um, I bring this up because, because uh, you need to understand that, that uh, not everybody is honest. All right, and uh, this, this cute little kit here, it comes with snap-on penises. I don't know if they're peni, if there's three of them, or penises. I don't know what they are, but, but they're there. They're latex. They come in different colors and shapes. And, you know, you can wear this leg bag on your, on your leg. You can purchase lyophilized or powdered urine online, uh, diluted with distilled water, and to the lab it looks like urine. Now, um, you really, really need to be, to be careful about uh, getting these urine screens because you need to know if they came from where they're supposed to come from. Now, a couple of years ago, <clears throat> I had an interesting case in our clinic where everybody left. The, the residents left, the interns left, everybody was gone. A couple of, well, actually one person took a day off, the nurses were gone. Now, I don't like to do observed urine. So the good thing about being a pharmacist is that we get to do all the fun stuff, and we don't have to usually touch anybody. So <clears throat> this guy comes in, he's on a big dose of, of oxycontin. Um, and... and uh, I go into the bathroom with him, tell him I had to do an observed urine. The guy's fiddling around with his zipper. It seemed like it was forever. It was probably only 30 seconds, but it seemed like it was forever. So I'm standing there, and he's doing his thing there. And the next thing, you know, there's a guy in the stall next to this guy. The guy's standing by the, by the urinal. And next thing you know, the penis falls off. <laughs> now, it's kind of freaky. And... You know, I could almost get past that, but when I bounced underneath the stall, and the guy is sitting there screaming because there's a penis on the floor. So you have to have a sense of humor. Um, and then the guy turns to me and says, does this mean I'm not getting my drugs today? <laughs> I think you know the answer to that question. So... Um, so the rationale, the, 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 the guidelines, uh, various guidelines recommend urine drug testing, but they don't really tell you uh, which test to use uh, or how to interpret it. So that, that's really uh, an issue. Uh, testing really does help to um, ensure compliance and, and mitigate risk. It's not, it's not a perfect thing, but it, but it helps. Detects presence of, illicit, presence of illicit drugs and absence of prescribed drugs. I mean, that's, I think, pretty obvious. How to justify continual prescriptions uh, or maybe to give short supplies while you're trying to, to figure this all out. And it supports the clinician's decision to discontinue controlled uh, substance medications. All right? Now, uh, I, I say that kind of, um, you know, with, with a grain of salt here because it's not justifiable to stop somebody's prescriptions if you don't know how to interpret the test. That, that's a problem. Supports justification for closer monitoring for sure and supports behavior modification. So if you, if you determine there's a problem, you need to get the patient help if, if, they're, if they're accepting of help. The pitfalls is that um, 
patient reliability report compliance, use and misuse, is pretty, pretty bad. I mean, if somebody robs a bank and you ask them if they robbed a bank, they'll usually say no. Right? So if you say, you know, did, 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 you, did you use cocaine? Well, no. Or, oh, you know, Dr. Fieden, it's the first time ever. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I would be a very wealthy person. First time I ever smoked pot. I, I, I'm hanging out in the car with my friends and they smoke, and they smoke pot. Well, then, then get different friends. You know, I mean, the, the, the stories you hear are unbelievable. Behavior alone is, so is, is not really reliable. Um, you really need to do these tests. And you need to know how to understand them. So here are the two types of tests. On the left side is immune assay, and the right side is chromatography. Now, I could break it down further, but for the sake of time, um, I, I didn't really get into too many specifics. So there's the immune assay, uh, which has the most false negatives and false positives. Uh, there's another immune assay that, that's um, a bit more accurate. It's called semi-synthetic. That gives you a number, but you still have false negatives and false positives because it still is an, an immune assay. I'll talk more about that. And then there's chromatography. Chromatography is very accurate. Uh, liquid chromatography is more accurate than gas. Um, tandem liquid chromatography is even more accurate than that. I mean, all the chromatography is like 99.9% accurate. Um, how long it's accurate for, in other words, how many days out from taking the drug would depend on whether it's gas or liquid. But chromatography is, is excellent, and it's considered definitive testing, where immunoassays are considered presumptive testing. So going through this uh, immune assay, the, the first bullet point in, in red, uh, usually it's in office or send out, so this would be the kind of test we see with a urine cup. Uh, it's not expensive. Uh, the results are really quick. It's in, in minutes. It helps for initial detection, uh, but it may not be the only test you should do, or it could be. We'll talk about that. Again, there's a lot of false negatives and positives. There's a lot of false patient accusations. Patients... Um, Patients do their homework. If they're, if they're professional um, drug users, uh, they're using them all the time, or they're diverting drug, they're probably more up on the, on the science of it than you are. Uh, you know, so so I mean, that's what they do for a living. And they don't have to pay taxes. I'm thinking of doing it myself. <laughs> so um, uh, uh, it's easier for patients to manipulate these things, uh, obviously, um, and, and make up stories, uh, presence and absence of drugs and that sort of thing. So... Um, on, on, the, on the right side, oh, I, I think I should, I should say on the left side also, for the immunoassay test, there's, there's really no option for, syn, for synthetic or what we call designer drugs. Things like kratom, uh, things like spice or, or, or synthetic marijuana, cathinones or bath salts, those things do not show up in immunoassay. Uh, they don't show up in chromatography either unless you order them special. So the standard chromatog chromatography does not usually include synthetic marijuana or spice, cathinones, uh, or, or kratom, or some of the other crazy drugs we see. All right, so chromatography is usually sent out. It's more expensive. It's 24 hours to a week, usually closer to 48 hours to a week. It is definitive or final result. Um, it justifies uh, decisions to change uh, prescriptions. Again, it's extremely accurate. Um, gives you the presence or absence of metabolites, which is another whole... Um, skill set that, that uh, you either need to have or know, know who to call, and uh, custom options for uh, synthetics and designer drugs, as I already mentioned. Now, I, I, I don't want to scare people. I know some people love chemistry and some people hate it, and, and, you know, but um, I think this makes it easier to understand. So there are five chemical classes of opioids. 
on your far left are the phenantrines. Um, I'm not going to really get into the therapeutics. We can talk about therapeutically how some of these things may be different. Um, but but uh, those are phenantrines. And when I say they're phenantrines, they basically all share the same nucleus. So even dextromethorphan has this nucleus. Naloxone has this nucleus. Um, so, you know, it's over here. So um, you've got to think of these amino assays as, a pu- as a putting together two puzzle pieces. One puzzle piece is the enzyme. One puzzle piece is the drug. So <clears throat> you know sometimes if you're putting together a puzzle, the piece kind of looks like it will fit, but, but it, it, it doesn't fit, but you can kind of force it in. And sometimes you may think, is this the right spot? I, mean, I, can, I can't, under, you know. That's what's happening with these. The, the, um, the, um, this, is, this is morphine, but, but um, this here, the, the bond off of the N uh, changes. And so there's a big group, chemical group, a small chemical group, it changes. And so uh, as, it, as it changes, um, the, the puzzle piece becomes bigger or smaller. So you might be able to force it in, you might not. This is the reason why the amino acid tests are, are not extremely accurate because they're not going to pick up some of the drugs that have a bigger, a bigger chemical um, attachment to them, all right? Um, but uh, theoretically, at least, in very, very high doses, all of the phenanthrines should be picked up on a urine screen. But a urine screen says, oh, right, it says opiates. That's a lie. It's not opiates. It's testing for morphine. It's testing for morphine. Whatever else happens to test positive that's in the phenanthrine group, it's a wonderful thing, maybe. Um, so then there's the benzomorphans. We're going to kind of, well, I, I, maybe I shouldn't skip over that because loperamide is starting to become a, um, a more abused drug. And I remember it was an abused drug back in the mid-70s, early, early 80s. Uh, these are not drugs that people generally use for, for pain, uh, but people do abuse, abuse these drugs. Diphenoxylate, which is part of Lamotil, uh, loperamide, and pentazacine, all benzomorphans. So you can see the chemistry is a lot different. None of the benzomorphans are going to get picked up an opiate screen because they're not phenanthrines. None of the phenylpiperidines, Demerol, uh, Piperidine, um, uh, fentanyl, sufentanyl, fentanyl, none of those things are going to get picked up in an opiate screen because the opiate screen tests for phenanthrines, not phenylpiperidines. The diphenylheptanes, methadone will not be picked up. Uh, Propoxyphene, that, that would be that would that'd be a miracle because there's not too much of that around. And then the phenylpropylamines, uh, which are uh, tramadol and pentadol. So, I mean, I, I put this up here not, not to, you know, to, to scare people away with chemistry, but so that you understand the reasons why these other drugs are not picked up. If you want to test for methadone on immunoassay, you can do that, but it's a, se- but it's a separate test, all right, because the, the chemistry is much different. All right, so this is kind of difficult to see. Um, this came, actually came off of uh, my Remitigate website, um, where, where it, 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 tells, it gives you on there. So it's remitigate.com, and this is up there for you. And it tells you from a validity standpoint, when you send these things to the lab, uh, what are the parameters uh, that, that you should follow to do validity testing? So you can just pull up on remitigate.com and you'll be able to read it uh, much easier. On the right side, uh, opioid and benzodiazepine metabolites. So over here... Uh, there's a list of all the benzodiazepines. Well, there's a number of benzodiazepines that are not picked up on the benzodiazepine screen. It's because of the metabolic pathway. Um, they include, and you can, you can scroll up on this, they, uh, they include, and I think they have an asterisk next to them. Well, I can't see that for the life of me, but I, I'll tell you. So the ones that will not show up necessarily on an immune assay are alprazolam, lorazepam, 
clonazepam uh, and flurazepam. Those are, the, those are the most common ones that may not show up on a screen. And in fact, if somebody's on low-dose clonazepam and their amino assay screen comes back positive, I would, I would do a definitive test because I'm thinking the patient's taking a different benzodiazepine. All right? Um, and these are the things that you need to know. It's another one you can't read. It's not really intended for you to read it, but, you, I mean, again, you can go to the web. I just couldn't get it all on here. Um, but, but this one shows the various different opioids. Again, it's on Remitigate, and, and um, uh, it also lists all the metabolites for you, all of them. And it includes ones that are not even in this country. Hopefully you don't have to deal with that, but, but it, this is a worldwide. Okay. Um, now, back to this. So addressing unexpected results. So uh, false or unexpected positive, you need to discuss the findings with the patient. Um, you, you need to confirm a false positive as a true negative uh, to support and document the integrity of the patient. What's going on in this environment today, the last thing you want to do is have a false positive in the patient's chart, and then that, that poor patient has to go someplace and f- try and find another doctor, and then the doctor says, rightfully so, uh, you know, I, I, need, I need your records, especially if I'm going to treat, treat you for pain management. Then the record comes, and you see that there's a, that, that there's a false positive for some crazy drug, which, which really wasn't true. And the, these patients are, are scrambling, trying to find somebody to take care of them. Uh, confirm unexpected positive um, to justify uh, uh, um, an actual outcome. An actual outcome is, okay, uh, there, there, is a false po- or there is a positive, it really was positive. I, I confirmed that it's positive, and now we're going to do something about that. We're going to put you on an abuse deterrent product. Uh, we may put you on a partial agonist antagonist like, um, like uh, Belbuca, right, or, or a Butrans patch, something like that. Uh, because if a patient is on a, a, a buprenorphine product, the pure opioid agonist will not be able to get to the receptor. Now, if you do that, if you do that, um, then you need, to make, you need to start testing for buprenorphine because you want to make sure that the patient's not selling the buprenorphine to buy hydrocodone. That, that's a problem, all right? So, um, you know, it, it, half my job is detective. The, the other half, I know, 40% is politician and 10% is practicing medicine. It's, it's, it's crazy. So, um, <clears throat> you know, third-party payers don't want to pay for, for abuse deterrent formulations. You need to put the onus back on them. Okay, I've got a patient that cannot take NSAIDs. I've got a patient that, that uh, anticonvulsants are inappropriate. Their blood pressure is too high. I'm not giving them an SNRI. This patient needs an opioid, and the patient has a substance abuse problem. Okay, and to have this patient's pain get worse is going to encourage them to go out and seek drugs. So I'm referring this patient to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but we need to control the pain, and therefore... I'm giving the patient whatever. I'm giving the patient, um, uh, you know, uh, whatever abuse deterrent formulation. I want to give the patient a buprenorphine product that you don't want to pay for, right, because it's, because it's not formulary. You need to put the onus back on them. And I would put right, right in it that the insurance company has been placed on notice that there's a high risk of substance abuse if the patient uses other than this drug, which I deem medically necessary put the owners back on the insurance company. Because if something happens, I would go to the family and say, here's the note. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but if I was you, I would think about calling an attorney. All right? Because this is what I ordered for, for your loved one. They, they shot up whatever. They died. And maybe one of the reasons that happened is because your insurance company is practicing medicine. Okay? 
Um, all right, so substance abuse counseling. The patient needs to go for counseling. It's, it's not okay to just throw the patient out on the street and see how long it takes them to shoot up heroin. It, it, you need to get some help Alternative, because it would be considered patient abandonment. Uh, alternative and other behavior interventions, and then false negative. Well, you want to confirm a false negative is a true positive to, to, to support the patient's integrity as well. Okay, so what products could you use? Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's all sorts of products you can use, and, and here's different ones listed that, that have uh, uh, abuse deterrent uh, formulations. Uh, there, there are others. Uh, there's, there's an, as, and, uh, I have the morphine up there, so a, a good drug for that patient might be in better, all right, because that's got the naltrexone in the core, and if you try and crush it, uh, then it's not gonna, it's not gonna work. And then we have, you know, synthetics. Obviously, I would try and stay away from these, from methadone, because that would be a, a dangerous proposition in this patient. Okay, so now we're gonna go through some patients, and hopefully have a good time here, um, seeing really how to sort this out. So this is a 43-year-old. Well, all these patients are real. Um, 43 patient, uh, year old uh, Caucasian male, TMJ and trigeminal neuralgia, failed NSAIDs, cartilage implants, nerve blocks, iontophoresis. Oh, we have a physical therapist here, right? You know iontophoresis, right? Yeah, there you go, okay. So iontophoresis, um, and um, so the past medical history was uh, hepatitis C, otherwise uh, inconsequential. So here are the drugs. Patients on gabapentin 1200 TID, uh, hydrocodone uh, ER, extended release, uh, once a, uh, a day, and uh, oxycodone tablets, 5 milligrams POTID. So those are the drugs. So you, you, uh, so you send it out uh, for immune assay, or you do a test in the office, and it comes back opiate negative. So let's look at the drugs. So the patient is on oxycodone, start from the bomb, PRN. So if the patient is on PRN oxycodone, then it, it is plausible that the opioid could be negative, right? Because maybe they're not taking it. And if they're doing something shady, they're always going to tell you they're not taking it. I mean, it amazes me how many times patients come into, into me after having the discussion about driving, right? It's okay. Like, I don't tell a patient, you know, adjust your dose. I'm going to double your dose. Go home, drive around, and see if you crash the car. It's not like that. It's like, you know, I, I, you know, I could tell you there's, you know, there's a dozen studies that show that if you're on chronic opioids around the clock and you're used to taking them, the reaction time in a motor vehicle is actually better in patients of chronic pain that are on around-the-clock opioids uh, than it is if you're off opioids because the, the, the pain distracts you, okay? Now, that's not necessarily the same for me with these opioids because there's a peak, all right? So I tell the patient this, you know, this, this is the information that I'm giving you. You need to make a decision, but my advice is that whenever a dose is changed, you do something differently, um, you, or you're on a new medication of any sort because of drug interactions that could raise or lower your blood levels, you shouldn't drive or operate heavy equipment. So we had this discussion with patients. Yet some patients come in, oh, Dr. Few, I didn't take my medication this morning. Well, well, well why? Well, because I don't like taking it when I drive. You know, tell, how, well, how often do you drive? Well, I drive quite a bit then how come you're getting prescription filled every 28 days? You must have a lot extra, right? Because you drive, you know, a few times a week, and you're not taking your medicine when you drive, so you probably don't need a prescription this month, right? All of a sudden, the story changes, all right? So um, it is plausible that, you know, for PRN, that they might not be taking it, and then we had this patient taking um, around-the-clock uh, hydrocodone. Now, 
we need to make a decision. So I, I showed you that what the finance means, hydrocarbon is a dehydroxylated finance mean. It's synthetic, semi-synthetic. So because of that, it is possible that at lower doses, it will not show positive on opiate screen. Because an opiate screen tests for morphine. It does not test for all opiates. It's a lie. All right? So we send it out for definitive testing, and the oxycodone comes back negative. Well, that's okay. Maybe the patient didn't take it. And the hydrocodone comes back negative. That's, that's not okay. That's not okay. Oh, Dr. Fiona, it's the first time I didn't take it. Well, this is a 24-hour dosage form, and the half-life is four and a half hours. So you know what? You're not getting any more. Oh, but it's the one time I forgot it. Huh? Too bad. All right, you look fine to me today. Um, so, uh, and, then, and then gabapentin, uh, gabapentin was positive. So this patient's taking uh, gabapentin for the trigeminal neuralgia and not taking these other drugs. And the truth is, oxycodone and hydrocodone are crappy drugs to treat trigeminal neuralgia anyway. All right? If you really wanted to treat a trigeminal neuralgia with an opioid, which I, I wouldn't recommend certainly as first line, then it would be tramadol, tapentadol, methadone, or levorphanol. Right? Because tramadol blocks reuptake of norepinephrine and serotonin, Serotonin won't help. The norepinephrine could help. The opiate activity of tramadol is pathetic, 6,000 times less the binding affinity compared to morphine. That's the same as dextromethorphan. Tependadol is a good drug. It's got good opiate binding affinity and only blocks reuptake of norepinephrine. Methadone blocks reuptake of norepinephrine, has some serotonin properties, opiate activity, and blocks NMDA, which makes it useful for neuropathic pain. Um, and levorfenol does all those things, but does not affect serotonin. So, so this patient's on the wrong drugs anyway, if they were taking them, uh, but, but they're not. So uh, you need to document this. Uh, you need to understand this. Um, and you need to get the patient. Um, so this is a patient that doesn't really need counseling. Right? This is a patient that has a business problem. As, as, of, as of this day, they have a business problem because I'm cutting them off. So you've got to go find another sucker. Okay. So, um, uh, so you need to speak to the patient, explain what's going on, and, and, and so on and so forth. So here's the, here's the second case. So this case uh, is a 50-year-old Caucasian female. History of chronic low back pain with justifiable pathology, back surgery times three. How many people, anybody in here ever have a patient that's had like four or five back surgeries? Right? I say to the patient, five back surgeries, I'm like, after the fourth time, didn't you think it was maybe a bad idea? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you know, and usually it's like, you know, do, do, you, do you usually like start getting, you know, it starts to heal, you feel a little bit better for a few weeks, and then by the eighth or ninth month it starts to get worse again? Yeah, how'd you know that? Because it's because of scar tissue. I mean, it drives me crazy. So, so anyway, so this patient had several surgeries, um, I mean, I can't tell the patient they'll get surgery. I'm not a surgeon. I'm not, I'm not a medical doctor. But I, I just shake my head and, and move on. So um, past medical history, chronic pain, depression, hypothyroidism, current pharmacological regimen, duloxetine, right, or Cymbalta, 60 milligrams POQAM, fentanyl, 50 mics per hour, um, uh, and it's changed every 72 hours or every three days. Hydrocodone, acetaminophen, one every four, four, uh, every four hours as needed. Now, you'll recall that fentanyl is a diphenylheptane. Uh, no, 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 uh, phenylpapyridine. It's a phenylpapyridine. So, so it's different in chemistry than the phenanthrines, all right? And hydrocodone is a dehydroxylated phenanthrine, which I showed you 
on that first chemical page. So what do these mean? So, so the patient is opiate negative, <clears throat> which we would expect with fentanyl, right? Um, and the, and uh, we don't know how much hydrocodone the patient's taking. So before I do these tests, I always say to the patient, how are you taking medications? Because usually they're like, you know, they want to make sure they can get the prescription filled. So how are you taking them? Oh, I take them, you know, like prescribed. Well, can you tell me what that is? Like the, I want to know if they need the bottle in front of them, right? I want to know if they really know how. So, oh, yeah, you know, I changed my fentanyl every three days. And how do you take your hydrocodone? Oh, you know, like it's on the bottle. Well, what is that? Well, I know, four times a day or every four hours. Okay, so how many do you take a day? You know, they don't want to tell you too little, right? Because if they tell you too little, you might not give them a, a refill. Even honest patients are like that. They're like, you know, they want to keep some squirreled away in case they go to Vegas and then get back on time, right? So, you know, I, I, I can deal with that. You want to have a few extra, you tell the doctor you're taking three a day. We're only taking four or five a day. You squirrel away a week's supply over the course of six months. I, I, I'm okay with that because um, I know people are going to do that. But I'm not okay with people lying to me, you know, to, to the point that, you know, um, yeah, I've been taking them every four hours for the last three days. So I asked them. And last... 48 to 72 hours, how have you taken your medicine? Well, you know, I take them like prescribed. Okay, well, can you be more specific? Well, I'm not sure exactly. Well, on average, do you take three a day? Do you take four a day? Do you, do you sometimes take none? Well, sometimes I take none, but, okay, well, how would you take in the last 40? It's like, it's like pulling teeth. Like in the last two days, uh, you know, if you're having memory problems from these drugs, we can lower the dose, you know. And they said, oh, well, so, yeah, so I took one this morning, and I took, uh, let's see, I took four yesterday, and three or four the day before. So on a pretty regular basis, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, you have to ask these questions before you do the urine screen, all right, because then the story changes sometimes. So the patient's fentanyl positive, that's a good thing. They're hydrocodone negative. Well, if they took four yesterday and three the day before, they're not going to be hydrocodone negative. But, um, but if, you know, if, that wasn't the if the conversation was, you know, I haven't taken it for a couple of days or I haven't taken it for a week, that, that's good. But when I go to do the, when I, go to do the I mean, the, you can't have it both ways. You know, if you didn't take it for a week, then that means you only need a three-week supply now. Right? You only need a 28-day supply. So, so you know, you, you kind of got, have to ask these questions in a way to sort of back the patient into the corner so you get, the, you get an honest answer, all right? So um, the, the hydrocodone is negative, which means the patient did not take it. Um, they're alpha hydroxyalprazolam positive, all right? So you see on the left side, benzos came back positive. So that, that's telling me that the patient's taking uh, a benzodiazepine that's not prescribed. Um, and, and, uh, and so that means that either if, the, if it's alprazolam Clonazepam or lorazepam, I know it's going to be a pretty high dose, right? Because those are not usually picked up on the screen. If it's something like diazepam or oxazepam, it wouldn't have to be a high dose. So when I get the results back and it comes back positive for alpha hydroxyalprazolam, which is the metabolite of alprazolam, I know that it came back positive in immunoassay. This patient's taking a lot of alprazolam, right? Um, and then uh, benzoegonine, well, that's, that's, that's the metabolite of cocaine. Now, sometimes, like on the, on the, on the left side, I said, to, I said to this patient, I said, you know, your, your results came back positive for cocaine. And she said, oh, no, co no, I don't use cocaine. You don't? You, really? Well, it, it came back positive. Now, it's, it's rare. I don't think I've ever seen a false positive cocaine, ever. Okay? Now, now um, 
this patient, in fact, I had, I had a patient, this, this is important, so I, I had a patient that, that uh, this guy had, he had the purple fingers, and, and uh, his, one of his toes came off, and it, he, was, he was 54 years old, and um, uh, he, was, he was diagnosed with, with possible Raynaud's disease, and he had chronic back pain, and he came to me on, on morphine, and I put him on methadone, because he had he had this burning pain in his hands from the Raynaud's. He had chronic back pain with ridiculous symptoms. Methadone seemed like a reasonable choice. So he was on methadone for a while. I hadn't seen him for, for a while. He comes back um, after a year. I wasn't following him anymore. He comes back on a new referral. I'm looking at his testosterone levels. Now, chronic opioids can, can affect testosterone. But um, his testosterone level today was normal. And I looked back a couple months ago, and it was like 36 that's weird. And I looked back a couple months before, and it was in the 800s. Now, this guy's arms, he's 56 years old. His, his arm, not that my legs are that big, but his arms are like the size of my legs. And his neck was like this. Now, I'm thinking, okay, this guy's taking anabolic steroids. So I asked him, oh, no, no, Dr. Vieden. Hmm, okay. Well, we're going to do a urine screen today. And so that urine screen is not only going to include this stuff, it's going to include anabolic steroids. And I tested everything. I didn't, I didn't just t- test uh, uh, amino assay. I tested everything. I sent it out for definitive testing. I, I, I tested it for designer drugs. I tested it for all the drugs that he was on, which included sertraline, uh, gabapentin, um, uh, included a lot of, a lot of drugs. He, was, he had been at one time on methylphenidate and was supposed to stop it for ADHD, and he told me he stopped it. So this guy comes back positive for uh, methylphenidate, which was supposed to stop, positive for cocaine, um, negative for sertraline, now, I think it was, actually, it was pregabalin. Negative for pregabalin. So negative for all of the, the, the drugs that were not controlled substances. Um, positive for methadone. Positive for oxycodone that wasn't prescribed. Um, uh, the anabolic steroid test came back positive. Um, I'm trying to think what else came back. And the cocaine came back positive. So I called him up. I had, a, I had a student with me. I said I had a resident with me, and I confronted him. He started screaming at me. I said, I'm going to wait till you finish, and then when you finish, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. So and all the time I'm hearing it, blah 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 blah, and so, and so after he gets done, I said, I'm like, you know, you, you're accusing me, you're telling me that I'm calling you a junkie. Now, I'm trying to tell you that the reason your fingers are falling off, is because testosterone supplementation decreases circulation in your fingers, because methylphenidate decreases circulation in your fingers. Um, be, uh, you know, you're, you're abusing these drugs. Uh, cocaine decreases circulation in your fingers. And you're yelling at me that I'm calling you a junkie. Uh, you need help, all right? You're more focused on being called a junkie than losing your fingers. Now, how are you going to lift a barbell if you don't have any fingers, right? So, I mean, this, this is a common thing. You have people that, that want to take pain meds to, to work out and bodybuild. No, no, Dr. Fina, I, I, asked, I asked a friend of mine, and, and, and he told me that, that since I had a lidocaine patch on, that I could test positive for cocaine. <laughs> I said, I have a couple of issues with that. The first issue is that I'm not prescribing lidocaine patches, so I don't know where you would get them. The second is, I don't know why you would have this conversation with your patient unless you were trying to fabricate a story before you got here. Um, and and it, it can't, you know, it's, it's a metabolite I tested. I, I tested it three different ways. Uh, no, no, it can't be cocaine. I said, look, I, you know, um, it doesn't, it isn't, it's no way this can happen. It doesn't matter if it's cocaine 
or a candy cane. It, 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 it can't happen. If you tell me if you eat a candy cane, it's going to come back positive for cocaine, it's, it's, it can't happen. So, all right, so same thing here. You know, I need to counsel the patient and figure out what's going on. Here's a 33-year-old patient uh, with, with cancer, uh, American Indian uh, male patient, and he's on morphine 90 milligrams a day and venlafaxine. So uh, we look at his immunoassay results, and he's positive for opiates, which that should always be the case if you're taking morphine, and he's positive for PCP. That's not too cool. Okay, but um, on, on uh, definitive testing, he's positive for morphine, he's positive for hydromorphone, which you may not think is too cool, but the truth is that hydromorphone is a very, very minor metabolite of, uh, of, of morphine, so it is possible. PCP is a false negative because of the venlafaxine. And he's positive venlafaxine. So this guy is totally legit. Okay, and I go through it here. Okay, so uh, this case four icing on the cake: butrans, quetiapine, alprazolam, and ibuprofen. All right, so um, he's negative for for opiates. Uh, he's uh, he's negative for buprenorphine. He's negative for uh, benzodiazepine. Uh, he's positive for cannabinoids, and he's positive for methadone. What do you think of that? That's a good excuse to throw a patient out of your office, right? Not really, all right, because buprenorphine will not come up on an immunoassay test, even, uh, even immunoassay is specific for buprenorphine at lower doses. Um, alprazolam is not going to probably show up at low doses, uh, and ibuprofen can cause a false positive cannabinoid, and Quetiapine can cause a false positive methadone. And there you go. So now you're thinking to yourself, how the hell am I going to remember all this junk? Well, okay, so, so um, this is the reason why. Again, I'm not trying to sell you anything. The, in fact, the, the, plat, the PC platform is free for everybody, and the PC platform has printability, so you can copy the clipboard, paste into the chart. Done. Uh, comprehensive note, and I'll show you what that looks like. So it's called Urintel. It's on remitigate.com. You can download it as a cell phone app, but it does cost money. Um, so um, what it does is you select the drug. So in this case, you select hydrocodone. Uh, the only reason I did this is because I can't, I can't answer 100 emails a week. Uh, so you select the opioid here. You selected hydrocodone. You type in 20. You select the benzodiazepines you can add. So you can add as many as you want. You can add... 50 different opioids if you want. Hopefully your patient's not in 50 opioids. Um, antidepressants, I selected venlafaxine, typed in 250. Uh, next screen, uh, selected naproxen. All right, so the patient's Rx's include hydrocodone, 20 milligrams per day, alprazolam, 2 per day, venlafaxine, 250 per day, and naproxen, 1,000 per day. So then you get this thing. And the default, so the green, or the default is going to be NA or not applicable. All right. See over here, it's going to be not applicable. So you just take your finger and you, you just poke if it's negative or positive. All right. So on the, bot, on the top here are the standard screens. Down here are typical add-ons. I don't know if I included that. Yeah, I did. So you can scroll up and there's these add-ons. So you can add on methadone. You can add on buprenorphine like we did in that last patient. You can add on whatever you want and just say whether it's negative or positive. Then you click next. It analyzes. Now, in case anybody wants to steal the code, it's not really analyzing anything. So what's happening is that I put it on three different H, uh, 
HTML platform. So it's in three different places and scrambled. So that when it's analyzing it, it's pulling everything together and making sense out of it. I guess I just don't trust people. I, I don't know. So um, then you get the results. So it says negative result for opiates. Negative result, non-expected, because the total dose of synthetic opioids may be too low for detection. Urintel recommends discussing finding with patient, use clinical judgment, and if indicated, definitive testing by quantitative confirmation. Now, why is it worried that way? It's worried that way because you need to make a decision. But at least now, you can make an informed decision. The other thing, an, an MSA could do this. And hand, it to, hand a printout, because you, you see you can do copy to clipboard, paste in the chart, or print to PDF. You can make a beautiful little PDF, and, and somebody can go in the room and hand it to the patient, and just have the patient look at it. And then it's not as confrontational, because you're like, well, you know, it is what it is. I, you know, well, I, I have to send this out for confirmation, because I don't want to falsely accuse you. Then you get a third-party payer saying, well, I'm not paying for chromatography testing. It's too damn expensive. Really? Are they, I have not had a single one of these things faxed over to a third-party payer that denied payment. Because you've got a very comprehensive document in your chart now, right? And it's kind of hard to deny something if you've got the documentation to back it up. For benzodiazepines, it says negative result is not unexpected because the, the prescribed benzodiazepine can provide a negative result. Urantel recommends discussing with patient, clinical judgment, blah, blah, same thing. Amphetamines. Amphetamine positive result. So this patient's got a positive positive result is not expected uh, since amphetamines are not prescribed. Recommend discussing with patient, blah, blah, blah. And then it says click here. So you click there, and then you get a list of all the drugs that can cause a false positive. Turns out the patient's got Parkinson's disease and is on levodopa. That's why they're positive for amphetamines. Okay? Uh, you scroll down, cannabinoids, positive test, not unexpected because positive naproxen was detected. All right? Um, let me just go back for a second. Um, cocaine was okay. PCP, positive result, not unexpected because false positive, blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, and then, uh, I don't know how I got in there. Okay. Um, so then you can copy it to the clipboard. All right? You can paste it into the chart. You can print the PDF. And this is what it would look like in the chart. I mean, it wouldn't be red unless you've got color ink in your chart, but, but that's kind of what it looks like. Um, and so uh, it just makes people's lives easier. Even people that really know how to, like I said, the PC version is, is, is free. And, and right now, I, I, don't, I, I took the printability off of the cell phones, um, but I'm going to probably put it back on, on, on smartphones because people are using uh, iOS on, on um, their iPads in, in, in the office. Some people have air print capabilities, so I'm, I'm going to um, put the print back probably in the next week or so. Um, but we're working on another issue, so, so but that's going to happen. But anyway, uh, the, the point is you can paste this into the chart and make your life a, a little bit easier. So how does this affect you? Well, well um, actually uh, found taking more drug than prescribed, an old drug prescribed, someone else's prescription or illicit drug. Um, or you can be, you know, somebody can be falsely accused on the part of the patient uh, for taking a drug that's not prescribed and so on and so forth. So we need to be fair to the patient but you need to be fair to yourself, too. I mean, you, you, we have an incredible task here in this environment with CDC guidelines. We're being asked to, to interpret urine screens, something that maybe we've not had to do before. Um, and then we've got insurance providers you know, coming after us because we're ordering too many tests. All right? So and if any of you heard um, Jennifer Boland speaking, who is an attorney, 
this week, she'll tell you that one of the major things, one of the major problems that people end up in court over is lack of documentation. So, you know, you're just as likely to be sued for patient abandonment as you are for not treating a patient or over-treating a patient or under-treating a patient. I mean, it's just crazy. You can get sued for anything. So my, my attorney, he always tells me, you know, first of all, you know, a patient would tell me they're suing me because I'm taking them off of their drug, and I, I just tell them to get in line because there's a lot of people who want to sue me. Um, and, and so, um, but my attorney, I, I, I've said to my attorney a few times, can, can somebody really sue me for that? And he says, Jeff, he said, you can be sued for anything. The paper doesn't reject the ink. Oh, okay, well, no, that's, that's your answer. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop here, and we have about five minutes for questions. I'll stay after if you have some questions as well. Thank you. Yes? So, okay, so the que- I, I think the question is, if a patient on extended release morphine, um, will, will it always show a metabolite of the morphine? Yes. Metabolites of morphine will always show, you'll, you should have three glucuronide and six glucuronide, and that will come out on a definitive test by chromatography. You're not going to get that, obviously, on immunoassay, but the metabolites should always be there. And if you have a patient that, that has, like you can send the urine out for definitive testing, they'll give you a number, and if the number is very high, let's say, of, of morphine, and there's no metabolites, that means the patient put the morphine into the urine because it never went through the liver. Other questions? Yes? Okay, so the question is, can I, can I address contaminants in, in uh, the drug products themselves? Um, so, so that has happened on occasion that there might be um, another, there might be some, some oxycodone in, in the morphine or vice versa. That would be extremely rare. And you could tell if that happened because if you, if you do an immunoassay test, it's going to give you the morphine level, it's going to give you the metabolites, and it's going to give you oxycodone. And oxycodone should come back as trace levels. So what I would do is I would repeat the test again and see if that happens. Now, if the patient keeps coming back with trace levels, that means they're taking oxycodone, all right, because it is very, very, very rare. Okay? Yes? Uh, you're talking about uh, for, for chromatography? So, okay. So, so um, if you're, by, by um, chromatography testing, um, if, you have, if you have, like, very few metabolites and you have a high parent compound, very, very high levels of parent compound and almost no metabolites, it means one of two things. It either means that the patient just took big doses before they came into your office because the liver didn't have time to metabolize it, right? Or it may mean the patient is genetically an outlier. So let's use oxycodone for an example. If the patient is on oxycodone, it gets metabolized by 2D6 to oxymorphone and 3A4 to, uh, to uh, noroxycodone. If the patient's on 80 milligrams twice a day of oxycodone, 
And their, and their um, urine screen, or their, even by definitive testing, their urine screen comes back positive for oxycodone and no oxymorphone and no, no oxycodone, they're not taking that drug on a regular basis. And with an extended release, we, we know that to be true. Okay? So um, uh, if, if, on the other hand, they had very, very high metabolites um, and very, very low no oxycodone, that may mean either they're taking oxymorphone, uh, it, it, it may be taking more than prescribed, uh, or it may be that they're an ultra-rapid 2D6 metabolizer. So I, I wouldn't get really too bogged down uh, with that unless you call a specialist because it gets pretty tricky. The other thing that you could do is if you suspect there's a, let's say you do a genetics test and you get help interpreting it or you know how to interpret it, and, and you get your answer, this patient's ultra-rapid metabolizer, maybe it's a good idea to take the patient off of oxycodone. But if they're doing fine, there's no reason to do that as long as they're monitoring. Another thing you can do, if you suspect that the patient, there's a problem with the patient, you can do serum levels, which a lot of people don't do. I do those. So if you have a patient that's on 20 milligrams a day, 10 milligrams twice a day of oxycodone, their blood level is going to be 15.1 plus or minus 4.6 nanograms per mil. I know that. I know that if they're on 20 milligrams twice a day, it's going to be 30 nanograms per mil plus or minus the standard deviation. That is extremely, extremely accurate. All right? And a lot of people don't, don't do that, and they get spoofed with the urine. So if you really want to know how much medication the patient's taking, do a blood test. I mean, it's not that much different of a cost to do a blood test by chromatography than it is to do a urine test. Now, another place that I find um, uh, noncompliance, a lot of noncompliance, is in the dialysis patient. People don't test dialysis patients because they don't have urine. They're like, oh, I'm off the hook. I don't have to test their urine. No, you need to test something. All right, so, so we did a, a study a while ago, and we found out about 34% of our dialysis patients were not taking any of their opioids because right? we, did, we did blood. And it's a little more difficult calculating out exactly how much they're, they're, they're taking because you have to, you have to calculate out for the, 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 the dialysate. Um, but but um, that, that's a very accurate way to do it, is to do blood levels, if you have any questions. Uh, yes, the, the, so when you, when you send this to the lab, they should give you a creatinine because you want to make sure that the sample is valid. Yes. That was on one of the slides. I, I put that on the Mitigate website, so it's just easy there for you to see. It's, it, it's on a tab that says validity testing. Okay. Other questions? Yes. So oral swab give you the same results as a renal failure patient? That's a good question. Does an oral swab give you the same results? You said in a renal failure patient? Yes, yes. So, um, yes. so if you do a swab, um, it's, it's not... Uh, it actually, the length of time after the patient took their drug... Is, is longer. So, so usually three to five days, three days are safe. After the patient took a drug, three days later, or within three days, you should be able to get a, a true positive. Uh, saliva is a little bit longer than that. So it, it's good from that perspective. But the concentration of the drug in saliva um, is not as good as urine because that's where the drug concentrates. Um, but, so, I mean, saliva is a fine test to do. It has all of the flaws of immunoassay because it's an immunoassay test unless you send the saliva for chromatography. So it's really the same principles apply 
It's just the window of detection changes from three to a little bit higher. Um, and it's a little bit less accurate because you don't have the concentration of the drug in the saliva. Uh, it depends. Okay, so the, the question is that the dialysis affect how much drug is in is in the, the body, and the answer is yes. So I, I would do a test before dialysis, not after dialysis, and it also depends on the drug. So methadone is not dial, dialyzed well, and methadone has a very very high volume of distribution. So as soon as you pull the methadone out, it comes out of the tissue and places back in the blood. So it really depends on the drug, but but the answer is yes. Question. Okay, so two questions. So, so the, the first question, what was the first question again? About the dialysis patients. Can I oh, yeah, so dialysis. So what I do with my dialysis patients is I contact the, the, uh, the um, nephrology clinic. I ask them to pull off a sample and send it out. Pretty simple. They're, they're accessing the patient any, anyway. They don't have a problem doing that. If the patient refuses, then I don't give them the drug. Just the same if the patient refuses an INR, they don't get warfarin. So, well, you know, I don't want to do the test. Okay, well, I don't want to give you a drug. It's that simple. Okay. Uh, the, the second question, what was the second question? <laughs> a witness, okay. So witness the ministry. So I, I get this a lot. Patients come and they say, oh, Dr. Fino, you know, I, I, I take my drug, I take my drug, you know, it, 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 I'll take it in front of you and, and do the test uh, two hours later. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've done that. Um, but so if, if they take the drug and two hours later it's positive, you know, How's that going to, are you saying that they take in two hours later, it's negative, and it was negative before? I mean, what, what would be the point in that? I'm not sure. Yes. No, no, because you're not going to get metabolites in the urine within two hours. It needs to go through the liver and be processed. It may take up to four hours to do that. And then you have to send it out for chromatography testing because you're not going to get metabolites by immunoassay. I mean, people, yeah, yes, the, the only, I mean, we've had patients that say, like, they're, they're um, it would be negative, like, let's say be negative, and they say, no, I'm, I'm definitely taking my drug, I'll take it in front of you, and then, then do a test two hours later. And, and um, I've done that, but I'll make them drink the drug in liquid form. Some of these people are experts about, you know, with cheeking these things, and uh, so I'll make them drink it in liquid form in front of me, and then drink a glass of water. I've done that. And so far, they lost the game every time. Not that it's a game, but I mean, you know, so it, 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 you can do that. But you need to be smart about how you do it. Question? Uh, so in our pain clinic, we're just doing liquid form practicing on everybody. Okay. God bless you. God bless you. I'm glad they paid for it. Yeah. All of the drugs? Are you talking about for chromatography or immune acid? Okay. 
Right. The only way you're going to know for sure, for absolutely sure, is to do a blood test. Uh, because, so if you have a patient on morphine and they come back positive for a hydromorphone metabolite, um, the metabolite sh should be a very small number, right, um, compared to the parent compound. And the norhydrocodone should be much higher. Uh, and there'll be some hydrocodone in there as well. So it will go hydrocodone, norhydrocodone, uh, hydromorphone. All right, so <clears throat> if... It's, it's metab... Oh, no, I'm sorry. The patient... Oh, sorry. Patient took morphine. So for morphine, it should be, it should be uh, three glucuronide and six glucuronide and a minuscule amount of, of, uh, of hydromorphone if it's in there. If it's, a, if it's a higher amount of hydromorphone than it is morphine, you've got a problem. You don't have to send a blood test. What I'm telling you is that if you get the urine back and the hydromorphone metabolite is higher than morphine and the other metabolites, that means the patient's taking hydromorphone because the hydromorphone is a very, very minor metabolite of morphine, very, very minor. Yeah, they can, so they have the concentrations. I just put them on the report. If they're doing chromatography testing on urine and they're saying it's above the cutoff, they have the numbers. They're just not putting them in the report. They have to have the numbers. So I would speak to the lab and ask them to start putting the numbers on the report. Ethylglucuronide. Yes. Ethylglucuronide. You'll detect alcohol three days past drinking. Yes. Okay, so it, so it, check, it, it only looks for morphine, but these other drugs that are phenanthrenes are close enough in chemistry that it can pick them up. So if a patient was on 60 milligrams of hydrocodone, let's say 80 milligrams of hydrocodone, it would always show up positive on, on an opiate screen. Um, I'm not sure, but based on what you're telling me, it sounds like you may be doing um, uh, semi-quantitatives, which is, which is like a step above immunoassay. So it's a little bit more accurate, and they give you numbers, right? But then, okay. So so it, so it's immunoassay for opiates, and it's immunoassay for a panel. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that that's what you've got. Who won't pay? Who won't pay for it? Okay, so so you do something like I don't care if you use my thing or you whatever, you send over a fax that outlines specifically what you've got. They won't be able to deny it, and if they do, 
you could bring them to, you could bring them to court over there, or you, you're not going to, but the patient could. You fax it over, and when they have those specifics, it'd be very hard to deny it. Yes. Okay, so if if uh, you want to select a drug, <clears throat> okay. So a patient is on oxycodone, and you do a urine screen. Let's say you do a, a urine screen specifically for oxycodone, and there's no metabolite in there. There's there has to be metabolite because the oxycodone goes through the stomach, first past the liver and to the blood, and when it gets to the liver, the liver converts it to noroxycodone or oxymorphone. If there's no oxymorphone in the urine, what it means is the patient took their urine and sprinkled in some oxycodone because there's no metabolite, it never went through the liver. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yes? Yes. So, so you're talking about doing um, definitive testing in the urine where they give you a number. First, I'm going to preface this by saying that you cannot uh, accurately calculate out how much drug the patient is taking by the urine. People have asked me this all the time, and I'm, I'm like, you know, I can answer your question based on experience, but in a court of law, I would never admit to it because it, it's, it's just not accurate. Now, so can you use those numbers? Yeah, you can use those numbers, and I'll give you an example. Let's say that you have a patient that, that uh, has a, um, uh, 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 a urine level of 1,500 nanograms per mil of oxycodone. Um, and all of a sudden, they come in to your facility, and they're lethargic, and something's going on. You're not really sure what, what the heck it, the story is. And you're thinking, you know, did the patient take extra? You know, it's like nothing's changed. The patient's honest. She's, she's in there with her husband. Um, and uh, then, then if, let's say the patient went to an urgent care and was put on clarithromycin, all right? And the clarithromycin uh, blocks 3A4. And so now what's going to happen is if you split it out, you would see 1,500 now is going to become 2,200 or 2,300. Now you're going to see there's more parent compound and less metabolite compared to the previous urine sample. So it's good for that. It's good, like if something has changed, patient went on a great food diet, other medications, patient started another medication, and, and the patient just seems, and you're like, oh, is this a drug interaction? You could tell by looking at those numbers on the urine, but you need something to compare it to. All right, last question. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? So the question is, how do you explain that buprenorphine doesn't show up um, even with chromatography, uh, at, at usually at lower doses? So I hope you're talking about lower doses. Yeah. Like what? You're talking about like a, a, a transdermal patch. Yeah, yeah. So the cutoff for chromatography testing for buprenorphine is very high compared to other opioids, and also it's a very potent drug. And think about this. So if you put a patient on a 5-milligram uh, buprenorphine patch, they're getting 5 micrograms per hour, 5 micrograms per hour. So that's, that's not a lot. That's not a lot of buprenorphine, all right? But they're not even getting that much. They're getting, they're getting 15% of that much 
because the transdermal patch has 15% absorption, right? So it's a very, 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 very small amount of buprenorphine to begin with, and then the cutoff is a bit higher than it is for the opiates. That's the reason why. Right, for higher, like Suboxone, the milligram quantity buprenorphines, you'll see a positive. For like a 900 uh, microgram uh, Belbuca patch, you're going to see a positive, um, and even lower doses. But, but the, the lower doses of the transdermal patches, if it, so like if you used Urantel, okay, and you had a patient that was on a, let's say, 7.5 uh, milligram Butrans patch, um, the result uh, would, would and, and that's immunoassay, but even so, on immunoassay, it's going to say, even if you do the buprenorphine screen, which is a semi-quant, and, and far more accurate than the regular immunoassay, it's going to, if it comes back positive, if it comes back positive, the, the text that you're going to get is going to say, um, positive result, not expected. Not expected. So um, if, if it is positive, then something else may have happened. Yeah, so, so I, I would probably do a blood level. If the insurance company wants evidence, I'm like, I'll give you evidence. You need to pay for a blood level, okay? Because then you'll know, because the cutoff for the blood is, is different than it is for urine for buprenorphine. If, if you're okay with that, I mean, you know, you know the patient. Um, I, if it was positive... On a five microgram patch, I would be more concerned than if it was negative. All right, so you have to look at the total take. I mean, I'd be very concerned that the patient's taking Suboxone and selling their patch. You know, so, so you have to be careful. All right, I'll take. Okay, well. well. No, you don't. You text me. That's good. Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah, because they won't report it because they, they feel like it's not accurate. You're right, yeah. Yes. Yes. But a, a, a quantitative confirmation by blood. Like if you, if you send, if you send um, uh, well, I, I mean, you know, I guess you don't have to ask for a confirmation. Just send for, send for a blood, and you're, and you're looking for a quantitative level. And automatically they'll send you the drug, and the metabolites. And actually, on my, on my other website, which is paindr.com, it's on the cover slide, um, I have uh, a resources button. Under resources, uh, one of the things is um, uh, opioid metabolite, metabolites and predictability. So it will give you a list of all the opioids, what the expected serum levels are for extended release, for immediate release, and what the metabolites are as well. So, like, if you don't know how to interpret them when they come back, you can pull it up as you print it. It's a PDF file. But that's not that's not the app. That's something different. Yeah. No, and people keep people keep asking me that, and I I started actually um, to write to write a program so that on the first screen you select uh, presumptive testing, presumptive testing. Uh, but I, I kind of got bogged down because uh, we were writing a, a new program for something called Naloxetel, which pre predicts percent risk of opioid-induced respiratory depression, because I felt that that was a more important place to focus my attention 
and then to come back to that. But that's, that's an excellent point, and, uh, and we're on it. It's just that there's, there's me and two other people, and it's kind of, it's kind of tough. Unless, like, everybody in this room paid 10 times as much for downloading the phone app, and then, you know, no, I'm only kidding. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. In fact, you know, there are people on the street that are making look alike pharmaceuticals, and people are dying because of that. You know, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff in those things. And levamisole used to be used as, you know, for, for worms. I mean, it's, it used to be used as a cancer drug, too. Um, so, uh, but it's a white powder. It's easy to pack and, and use to cut to make tablets. So, yes, I mean, you can get a tablet that looks just like brand name Percocet, you know, if, if, if they color it. Uh, so, you know, oh, yeah, you know, unless she's got worms or something, you know, or has cancer, you can be pretty, pretty certain that she took something that was covered with levamisole. It's very, very common. It's cheap. Um, it gives patients, makes patients feel like a little weird. So, you know, you can put something cheap that makes people feel, people like feeling weird. I don't, I don't know. So, yeah, that's, that's I'm, I'm 100% sure that that's what happened. Unless, you know, she's, you know, she's being treated by an oncologist and she's got testicular disease. That's probably not the case. So, okay, other questions? Yes. Yes, amino assay for cocaine tests the benzaglionine metabolite. It does not test for the parent compound. And that's the reason why amino assay for cocaine is so accurate. Um, no, it means they snorted it just before they came to your office. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, yes. Well, I, I don't know if there's a billion dollar industry in making fake urine. But um, the only way you can know it's real is if you watch the patient pee and make them take their clothes off completely. Because if, they, you know, if, they're, if they're hanging down a latex penis, you know, unless you're going to go out there and poke it, you're not going to know. Right? I, had, I had a woman, actually, that had a... This is unbelievable. This, this woman, um, uh, her urine just didn't come out. Her, she was positive for morphine, which was prescribed. I did a blood level, which is extremely accurate. And urine came back negative on an observed test. So I called her into my office. I told her she had two hours to go get a cup of coffee or whatever she wanted, come back and tell me how she did it. Otherwise, I'm going to cut her off and document it in the chart. She denied that she did anything. So she came back two hours later, 
she told me that what she did, uh, what she does is she, she takes the urine, um, she gets her kid to pee in a cup, and then the night before, she, she I, I told her to give her one pass if there's a plausible explanation, she got a pass for this. She, she uh, draws the urine up in a syringe, and she cleans out um, a toothpaste tube with alcohol and blows a fan on it at night so that the alcohol comes out. And then she, in the morning, injects the urine into the tube and sells the top with wax and then puts the tube in her vagina upside down. And then if they do the observed urine, squeeze and it come out. I'm like, okay, you get one free pass. Uh, so the stuff that goes on is, is, is crazy. Did you have a question? Yeah, I'm sorry, back up. Oh, your back hurts. <laughs> we're going to urine test you before you leave. <laughs> okay, thank you all very much.